Have you ever picked up a piece of food expecting one taste and you totally got a different taste in your mouth? Anybody ever had that happen? <laughs> Recently that happened to me with a cookie, a chocolate chip cookie. Um, I picked up a chocolate chip cookie, which I adore. How many of you adore chocolate chip cookies with me? However, some cookies, they, the bakers know how to play those evil tricks on you. They, uh, they take the cookie and they, they take an oatmeal raisin cookie. Now, I know some of y'all are fans of oatmeal raisin cookies, all right? Raise your hand, go ahead and confess. I'll pray for you anyway. So, so this week, this happens to me. I, I, I pick up a cookie. It's kind of dark. I didn't realize. I thought I was getting a chocolate chip cookie, and I go, oh, that was not what I expected, all right? Let's just, I'll just go out right now. If you really love your pastor, you will not give him oatmeal raisin cookies. I'll just give them to my wife. She'll eat them. It's fine. She loves getting all the cookies. She knows she doesn't have to battle me. We have food battles in our house. Can anybody testify that we, we have food Nazis in our house that fight over? I'm, I'm not pointing fingers at my uh, children, but anyway, we have, we have people that fight over food. They don't have to fight with oatmeal raisin cookies with me. I, I'm a chocolate chip cookie fan, and, and so I cannot describe to you the disappointment <laughs> that my taste buds experienced this week when I was expecting chocolate chip morsels, and I end up, end up getting raisins in my mouth. My expectations were for one thing, and I totally experienced something else. For the Pharisees of Jesus' day, what they expected about Jesus didn't line up with their expectations. The Pharisees' experience with Jesus did not align with their expectations of what they thought God would be like. It's so important that we get that in our head as we're about to study this scripture because the reality is they were expecting God to walk and talk and act a certain way. And when Jesus came, he completely shattered the stereotypes. He was uh, uh, forgiving people of their sins like the paralyzed man. He, he, was, he was calling tax collectors to follow him. And then not only that, he was going to a tax collector party. And he was, looked like he was celebrating being there. He wasn't just tolerating it. He looked like he was actually enjoying these tax collectors' company and the fact that, well, in the end, many of them were starting to follow Jesus. And so Jesus shattered the stereotypes of what the Pharisees expected. And so because of that, this left the Pharisees bewildered, confused, and mixed up and actually angry to the point that they started to make a plan to kill Jesus. If you look over to chapter 3 of Mark, verse 6, we'll get there next week. It says that the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians. By the way, the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along on anything except they both agreed that they should plot to kill Jesus. And so Jesus was so unlike what they expected God to be that they hatched a plan after the Sabbath day encounter that we'll study next week that they devised this plan to kill Jesus. And so the title of this message today is, Are You Mixed Up? 
are you mixed up? Because what we see here today in this passage is a group of people who were confused, bewildered, mixed up about what God, who God was and what God came to do. And Jesus is about to absolutely unleash heavenly wisdom that is meant, hopefully, to open their eyes. But as we'll see, they chose to remain blind, willingly blind to the truth of what Jesus came to do. And so the reason for this confusion with the Pharisees and Jesus was because they could not see that God always had a new plan in mind. While God in his nature and character has never changed, he has changed how he has dealt with mankind down through the ages. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3 very clearly lays out this idea of a progressive revelation that culminated in the revelation of Jesus Christ and what Jesus came to reveal about the Father and about the nature of who God is. And so God was always working towards this final step in his plan of redemption of humanity. And the Pharisees could either could not or would not see it. God had been talking about this hundreds of years before in the Old Testament. He said, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He was always about going to do a new thing. It says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And so somehow the Pharisees missed that God was always about driving towards doing a new thing, revealing a new and everlasting covenant in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. And so according to these verses we just read, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day should have seen that God was about to do something new. And this is what Jesus is going to choose to talk about in our passage of study this morning in Mark 2. Verses 18 through 22. And so what he's going to, what's going to happen actually today and next Sunday, we'll, we'll kind of revisit some of the same thoughts, but we'll look specifically at the Sabbath day issue that Jesus is confronted about. But what's going to happen is he's going to be asked here in this portion of Scripture a couple of questions by the Pharisees about the old covenant laws of fasting and Sabbath keeping that the nation of Israel had been following and living with for over 1,400 years. Now, if you had been following a tradition that God ordained, that God gave in his word for 1,400 years, would you agree it might be hard to let go of it? It's hard for us to let go of traditions we've had for 40 or 50 years, let alone a nation that has had something going on for 1,400 years. But all the same, God was about doing something and showing the nation something through his son and that was the old was temporary, and it was meant to bring in the new. So let's read the passage of Scripture, and then we'll dig in and look at three truths here from this text. Verse 18 says, And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come to say, and you might say, what is fasting? Fasting is where you choose for a certain period of time to not eat any food, all right? So not, you don't need any food. Um, how many of you are not fans of fasting? You're fans of feasting. Can I get a witness? All right, yeah, I see some of you. Now, there's a lot of great health benefits to fasting, and I don't think God is against a voluntary fast. But what had happened in this culture is they had created extra days of fasting that we'll dig in here and see. 
And so the disciples of John and the disciples of, and, and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy, but, but thy disciples do not fast? They don't fast. Why is that? So the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say, Why do your disciples not fast? Verse 19, And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment. Else the new piece that filled up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. How many sowers we got out there? You understand what Jesus is saying there with that parable? Yeah. I don't really sow, so I had to kind of think about that for a while. But if you're a sower, you understand that. We'll explain it here in a little bit. Verse 22, And no man putteth a new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. Father, bless during this time as we study this passage of Scripture, and may we be able to take your word and evaluate whether we too are mixed up and confused and may you bring clarity to our understanding of the gospel today and understanding the glorious new covenant that we live in as believers in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see, first of all, here in this passage, verses 18 through 22, we see, first of all, in verse 18, a critical accusation. A critical accusation that the Pharisees bring forth to Jesus. This looks like a question in verse 18, and perhaps maybe some of the disciples of John had a legitimate question, and that's interesting. The uh, disciples of John and the Pharisees came with this question. The disciples of John, as you know, were, were followers of John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist understood the nature of his ministry. He understood that his ministry was only temporary. He must de decrease. Jesus must increase. But, but John definitely practiced fasting in the wilderness. You know, he didn't have a lot to eat. And what he did eat, he ate locusts and wild honey. And so uh, in the old covenant system, there were all these fastings that were occurring and so the Pharisees took advantage of this moment. I think probably the disciples of John had a legitimate question. They weren't trying to be accusatory. But the Pharisees most likely jumped in on this question and said, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Why do your disciples, Jesus, why are they not serious about fasting, about following this, this law of fasting? And so this looks like a question in verse 18, but I would argue it's actually a rhetorical accusation, and the Pharisees are not really interested in hearing what Jesus has to say. They're really not interested in his answer. Um, they never really were interested in any of their public encounters with Jesus about actually getting their questions answered. They asked the questions to paint them in a corner, to try to trip him up, to try to make him look stupid, to try to stump him. And, uh, oh yeah, by the way, it's easy to tell when when people are asking questions, not because they genuinely want to know, they just want to use that question as a purpose of accusation. And so the Pharisees would go around asking questions centered around Jesus' seeming contrary behavior to one of their laws, whether it was a Sabbath slip-up, as we'll see next week, 
or a fasting dietary rule or issue or uh, his association with what they thought were wrong associations with sinners, as we saw last week with Matthew and his tax collector buddies. What's interesting about this question is that actually, as I mentioned, two groups are involved in the question, both the Pharisees, but also the disciples of John the Baptist. And I'll just remind you that not all the followers of John the Baptist understood the nature of John's ministry, that it was only temporary, that it was only pointing to the Lamb of God, which would take away, away the sins of the world. And so this question that the Pharisees lay out before Jesus, while he's still at the feast, I believe, while he's still at the party with Matthew and his tax collector buddies, they raise this question about fasting. You know, they didn't like the answer that Jesus gave in verse 17. So now they try to come at it from another angle. They didn't like his associations in verse 16. Jesus answers with incredible wisdom in verse 17. And now they come back with another question. Another accusation, if you will. Um, and so it really wasn't an objective question. It was actually a severe criticism. They want to put Jesus on the hot seat. Why is Jesus running so contrary to their current religion? Who does he think he is? Why does he ignore the required separation from sinners? Why does he ignore the required fastings? <laughs> but the truth is, Jesus is a master of his, his own words because he wrote them. There was actually only one required fast in all the Old Testament. Write down Leviticus 16, verses 29 through 31. The only required fast day in all of the law was the Day of Atonement on Tishri 10, Yom Kippur. That was the only day that was required, according to the law, to fast. Now, there were a lot of voluntary fasts that we read about in the Old Testament. We read about Isaiah fasting. We read about King David fasting. We read about uh, Moses fasting. Uh, we uh, read in the New Testament about Jesus' voluntary 40-day fast. That wasn't required under the law, but he chose to fast. And so many of us have probably had voluntary fast, although I, I'm not going to volunteer too much for that. But, uh, but we've all probably been there. But according to the law, there was only one required fast. But the Pharisees had gone beyond the law and they were setting up two weekly days, two days weekly of required fasting. They had two days every week that they required fasting. In fact, it says in Luke 18 verses 10 through 12, when that Pharisee was praying in the temple and he saw the publican, the tax collector across the way, he said, God, look at my righteousness record. Look at my credentials. I fast twice in the week. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. That's, that's what they chose to do. I'm, I'm thinking, why, why do that? But, but anyway, they, they, they chose to do that. And, and so this Pharisee was re rehearsing what he thought was required and what he thought qualified him to be heard by God. And so the Pharisees did three things publicly. They prayed publicly, they gave alms publicly, and they fasted publicly. It was a very visible public and, might I say, hypocritical activity for them to engage in. And what's so fascinating about the interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees is these are the three things that Jesus uh, uh, lays out on the Sermon on the Mount. It says in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he says, when you do your alms, don't sound a trumpet. And when Jesus said that, the Pharisees were like, ooh, we do that. We want to be seen of men. We want to have our reward. We want people to see how much we give. And so Jesus confronted their issue of almsgiving publicly because all that was was a religious show. He then confronted their, um, 
praying. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the the streets. And then in verse 16, he confronts their public fasting. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. It's always fascinated me when Christians talk about their fast fasting and they let you know they're fasting. You know, it's like, and, 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 and some are like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm fasting. It's like, oh, oh, you're more spiritual. I'm sorry. I, I, I kind of forgot, you know. You know, oh, oh, because you fasted, you've got this special connection to God that nobody else has. That's mixed covenant teaching. And we're going to point that out again at the end of the service. And so Jesus confronted these issues. And because of that, the Pharisees didn't like it. And of course, Jesus never allowed the Pharisees to paint him into a corner. I mean, he was the master at answering their questions. And so we see their critical accusation. And let me just say this. This is a challenge for us. Do we, when we offer questions to one another, are they genuine questions that we're going to wait to hear an answer for? Or have we already predetermined what we think the answer should be? And so we're really not asking a genuine question. We're just really levying a rhetorical accusation. I see that all the time in churches, in life. And this would really challenge all of us that when we ask a question of somebody, are we, are we, are we, are we really, waskily wabbit, are we really willing to hear the answer? Hey, that'll help us in our marriages, amen? When was the last time you genuinely asked your spouse a question and you were like, I really just want to hear an answer and, I, and I'm willing to receive an answer and even change my mind by the answer they give or you've already got your mind made up. Come on. Amen, preacher. That'll help our marriage this week. Yeah, there you go. All right. So we see the critical accusation. The Pharisees really aren't looking for an answer. They just want to stump Jesus. They just want to put him on the hot seat. And of course, Jesus, the master answerer. We see number two, an extraordinary answer. Verses 19 to 20. So Jesus answers and says this, fascinating. Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. We see an extraordinary answer here by Jesus. This is fascinating. How does he answer them? He says this. He says, you don't fast at a wedding, you feast at a wedding. Can I get an amen? That's some good truth right there. Amen? You're like, well, wait, wait, what, what, what does that mean? Well, Jesus uses a, a word picture here. He calls himself the bridegroom, and he says that when you're at a wedding, you're not supposed to fast. Here's the masterfulness of his answer. And the, ma- the masterful of, this, uh, of his answer is he uses both the Old Testament law and the reality of what he has come now to do to answer the question, what do I mean? Do you realize that according to the law, it was not lawful for you to fast at a wedding? In fact, God God lays it right out there in the Old Testament scriptures. You weren't to fast at a wedding because God knew how these laws would be abused. He knew how the Pharisees would take them years later and abuse them. And so he wanted to make sure that people understood that at a wedding, it's a time for feasting, not a time 
for fasting. And so Jesus uses a nugget of the law, even in his response, to show the Pharisees that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it to then bring us into a new relationship, which we'll look at here in a moment with his incredible parable that he's about to tell. Just two verses. But he lays out so much truth in those two verses. And really, I would argue that the two verses we're about to study is at the heart of understanding the entire Bible. Here in our church, we have a key called a master key. How many of y'all know what a master key is? Master key unlocks every single door in the building. And I would argue that the parable that Jesus tells, and there's no mistake of why Mark chooses to mention this as his first parable that he teaches, is the master key of understanding your entire Bible. So if we want to grow in our understanding of God's word, we will hear wisely the words that Jesus is about to tell us. But before we get to that, we see this extraordinary answer. So he gives a nugget of the law in his answer, but then he says, you don't realize who's here. You don't realize what's going on here. This isn't a funeral. This is a wedding This is me. I am here. The revelation of the Godhead bodily is here on earth. I am the bridegroom, and and, 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 and we're we're involved in a feast. And, of course, he was literally at a feast where people were coming into his family. They were getting saved. They were becoming followers of Jesus. And they try to come to him and basically say, Jesus, you're not serious enough. That's literally what they were saying because the idea of fasting is you're very somber. You're very serious. You're very sincere. And so Jesus says, listen, this is not the time for fasting. We're in the midst of a wedding celebration. We're in the midst of of sinners coming to repentance. You're totally missing the whole purpose of why I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. I've come to bring people into my family. This is a time for feasting, not for fasting. But notice what he says, and this is where many scholars agree that this is the first time that Jesus alludes to the impending reality of his death. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away. This is the first reference by Jesus to his imminent death here in the gospel of Mark. I'm sure that at the arrest, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were crushed emotionally. And I'm certain that they most likely fasted for those several days. Uncertain of where Jesus was, uh, you know, was he, uh, they didn't even have a concept of the resurrection at that moment. They, they thought all hope was lost. In fact, you get a little evidence of this in the road to Emmaus when the disciples are walking with Jesus and they don't yet know who he is. They get to the house and it says that Jesus took bread, blessed it and break it and gave it to them. And it says in a couple of verses later that it was in the breaking of the bread that their eyes were opened to the fact that Jesus was there in the room. Many scholars would agree that those disciples had been fasting for several days, and then Jesus is the one that broke their fast. Wow. A time for feasting, not for fasting. Once Jesus had come out of the grave, the fasting would end, the feasting would continue. And so we see here in Jesus' response, we see him pointing out the reality of what the Pharisees were interested in versus what he was focused on and what he was interested in. The Pharisees were into self-righteousness. They were into people, you know, really, ooh, there goes a spiritual person. They fast twice in the week. They give alms of all that they possess. They pray publicly. They're eloquent, flowery prayers. 
And so the Pharisees were into self-righteousness, but Jesus preached grace. They were into denying that they were sinful, but Jesus preached repentance. They were proud of their religiosity, but Jesus preached humility. They were into their external ceremony, but he preached a transformed heart. They held tightly to the old covenant, but he offered the new covenant. They loved the approval of men. He offered the approval of God by free, limitless grace. They had ritual. He offered a relationship. And his offer was open to everybody. And that's what they didn't like. So we see his extraordinary answer. He answers their question, their accusation, with an answer that I think leaves them kind of dumbfounded. They weren't expecting that answer. They weren't expecting such incredible wisdom. But then we get to this, and that is the powerful parable that he is about to give. It's literally the uppercut of truth that Jesus is about to lay out. And I, I would argue that if you understand this parable, you're at the heart of understanding the entire revelation of Scripture. Because in understanding this, you're able, catch this, to rightly divide the word of truth. So a powerful parable. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, so Jesus paints this sermon illustration. Y'all like sermon illustrations? Here's Jesus. He's the master storyteller. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man puts new wine into old bottles, else the new wine does burst the bottles. And in, a, and, and in another gospel account, Matthew and Luke also record this illustration they're called literally wineskins. The bottles of that day were literally leather bags. Uh, uh, um, they were made from actually a goat leather, and they were animal uh, leather bags. And over time, through the use and the reuse of those bags being dried in the sun, they would become brittle. And so Jesus is saying, you don't take new wine that hasn't been fermented yet and put it into old wineskins. Why? Because when you put new wine that hasn't gone through a fermentation process yet where gases are causing expansion, if you put it in an old, brittly wineskin and those gases start to expand, you're going to burst the bag because it doesn't have any stretchiness left to it and you're going to ruin both the bag and the grape juice and the wine. And so Jesus gives these two illustrations. One, a patch, a new patch in an old garment and two, new wine and old wineskins. So what does this illustration mean? Well, if you are a sower, you would understand that if you have an old, let's say an old pair of jeans, for instance, um, you know, I was, I was tempted to wear holy jeans today, but I'm just not a holy jean kind of guy. Sorry, teenagers, I just don't get it. You know, it's like, it's like you pay a hundred bucks for holy jeans. Hey, no, that's cool. I get it, it's style, it's style. That's not my style. So anyway, I, I couldn't do that today. But imagine if I had a big old hole in these jeans and they were old and I wanted to go and patch them and I got a new patch. The teaching is, is that if you put a new patch on an old hole, then if that patch hasn't shrunk yet, when it starts to shrink, it's going to pull away from where you've patched and it's actually going to make the hole bigger and actually ruin both. That's the basic teaching of what Jesus is saying. He's basically saying the new patch cannot mix with the old garment. The second illustration he gives and again, if we, un God, give us wisdom to see this, because I do believe that if we see this, we understand the entire message of the Bible, and you can finally understand passages that never made sense. 
You're like, okay, what parts apply to me? What parts don't apply? You know, all scripture is profitable, but not all scripture is directly applicable to you. That's why you still don't sacrifice animals on the day of atonement. Why? Because you know that that no longer applies. Well, here's the things. What all applies in the old versus what all applies in the new, that's where you have to rightly divide the word of truth. And this is where arguments and discussions and all kinds of things happen. And they will until the day that Jesus returns, but, but this will give us clarity. And so we see this powerful parable here. And so he says, old, old cloth doesn't mix with new cloth. Second illustration, new wine doesn't mix with old wine. I've kind of, kind of already explained that one, right? You don't put new wine in the old wine skin because through that process of fermentation, of course, any juice left sitting is going to just naturally go through that process. It can be sped along and helped along with different ingredients added, sugar, yeast, and those things. But, but even in that day, um, to place uh, wine, grape juice in a wine skin, it's going to expand. And so the illustration there again is new wine doesn't mix with old wine skins. What's Jesus saying? He's basically saying these things do not mix. If you try to mix them, you ruin both. This is why God hates lukewarmness. I never could understand that passage in Revelation until I compared it with this scripture. Why would God wish that we were cold or hot? Are you saying that God would like us to be? No, no, what he's saying is, is mixture ruins both. And mixture ruins both here. So what's the application? Here's what Jesus is saying. Through this parable, he's basically saying, you're trying to take something new that I'm doing and you're trying to co-opt it and fit it back under the old. It's not gonna work. I'm doing a completely new thing. And I can see some of you smiling and nodding because you've seen the truth. You know the truth. It set you free. This is the reality of the new covenant and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so he gives this powerful parable that I would argue changes our whole understanding of Scripture, changes our understanding of the revelation of the Godhead and what Jesus came to do. And he's saying, I came to institute a new covenant. So Jesus gives two powerful illustrations about this new covenant and this new life of love and fellowship with him. He is saying that he did not come to polish up the law. He did not come to add to the Mosaic system. He didn't come to add a refinement or a further development upon the law. He came to fulfill and then to usher in something new. He didn't come to patch up an old garment. He came to give us a new garment. Under the law, men worked and their works were like an old moth-eaten garment. Isaiah says, filthy rags. But Jesus came to give us a new robe of righteousness that is placed upon the sinner who will trust in him Alone, Jesus did not come to extend or project the law of the Old Testament system. He came to introduce something new. Now, I know that for those who have never heard this, the arguments and the objections immediately start in the mind, just like they did in the Pharisees. But, 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 but how will we know what's moral? How will we know what's right? How did Joseph know what was right 400 years before the law was given at Sinai, friend? Think about that. Think about how did man know what was right and pleasing to God before the law was ever revealed on tables of stone. So we're not here today to say that we hate the law, that we don't think that the law was needful. No, we agree with the apostle Paul and the revelation that the spirit gave to him that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so you give the law to a self-righteous person who thinks that they're pretty good, who thinks that they measure up, you know? Do you know why? Because the law kills that hope. The law shatters that argument, as we're about to see. 
And so Jesus said that he came to usher in something new. John 1.17, the scriptures are so plain. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The old doesn't mix with the new. Moses was verily faithful in all his house, Hebrews 3, 5, and 6 tells us. And he was a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. You see, Moses was important because he prophesied of the prophet to come. He pointed us to the last prophet, the one who would give to us the truth about who God is. But Christ as a son, do you see it? A servant doesn't hold a candle to the sun, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. So the law was given through a servant, but grace and truth came through the son. The law talks about what man ought to be. Grace reveals who God is and who he has made us to be in him. Think about this. The first miracle that Moses ever did was he touched the waters of the Nile and they turned into blood, resulting in a plague and death. In the first miracle of grace, Jesus turned water into wine, resulting in life and celebration. Do you see that Jesus is greater? Do you see how his ministry far excels any ministry of whether it was Moses, Aaron, the old, the, the old priesthood? Hebrews is clear, Jesus is better. The spirit kills, but or the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That's why Paul says we are able ministers of the New Testament, the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter killeth, but the spirit gives life. Again, Paul, Paul understood there's no mixture here. If you try to mix the two, a little bit of poison with a spoonful of grace is still going to kill you. There is no mixture here. There is a separation. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. But now that faith has come, Paul is clear, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. But, 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 what about law? How do we know to live right? What about the Spirit? What about the Spirit of God living and resting and residing with us? And, and John, I, I love John because in his epistle, he's like this, the Obedience to God isn't burdensome. It's not grievous. Why? Because the law is simple, the law of faith and love. That's the law of the new covenant. And by keeping those two, by truly believing what God has done for us in the gospel and, and love, we're going to keep all the original nine moral that were engraved on stones. Oh yeah, by the way, the tenth, the Sabbath, wasn't a moral law, but they're about to attack them on that one too because they didn't figure they could get them on fasting because he like blows their mind. And so now they're going to come back to the Sabbath keeping and we'll look at that next week. And so Paul says here, we're able ministers of the New Testament. Listen, my mission in life is to make sure that God's church understands the difference and is a faithful student of God's word, rightly dividing the word of truth. Why? Because a little law mixed with grace spoils both. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Paul would echo this in Galatians 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's the law. He says there's no mixture. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's Paul saying? Don't try to mix it you'll ruin both. Don't try to put a new patch in an old garment, you'll ruin both. Don't try to put new wine into old wineskins, you'll ruin both. So we're to rightly divide between old 
and new covenants. God understood that the law served a very specific purpose. It was added because of sin to convince mankind of their sinful and fallen state. Galatians 3.19 asks the question, wherefore then serve the law? Why was it added? It was added because of transgressions till. That word is so important. That shows you the temporary nature of God's old covenant system of God's law. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Oh, amen. So this was temporary. It was given to mankind to convince. Why did God need to do this? Why did he give the law? Because God knows how easily man can deceive himself into thinking that he's pretty good and not that bad. So the law was given to stop our arguments for our own self-righteousness or our own boasting. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Because it's not until you realize your guilt that you're truly ready for grace. It's not until you recognize your guilt that you're truly overwhelmed with grace. And it's not until you're truly overwhelmed with your guilt that you truly see grace for what it is. The law is unforgiving in its demands for perfection. The Pharisees had conned themselves into believing that they were good keepers of the law, but they weren't. They were not. James 2.10 is so clear. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And it amazes me how self-righteous religious Religious systems love to pick and choose which parts of the law they're going to keep. So much hypocrisy. This is what the world sees, and they see the game. They see the fakery of it. They see the emptiness and the shallowness of it. And they see the games that people are playing in their religion, and they know that it's bankrupt. And this is what the church, if it continues to try to hold both, if it continues to try to have one mountain, one foot on Mount Sinai and one foot on Mount Calvary, it's going to continue to be powerless because we're not rightly dividing the word of truth. We do not understand that the old does not mix with the new. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here in this passage. The old doesn't mix with the new. The old was needed to point us to our need for the new and praise God for that. And we can still learn from the old and see how, yeah, we can't keep it. We couldn't do it. That's why we needed something completely new, a new covenant, a new birth, a new nature, his new spirit living inside of us, and a new love for him. Jesus did not come to patch up an old system. He came to bring the new covenant to replace it all together. He brought a new covenant of total forgiveness of sin, all sins, past, present, and future, through his once for all shed blood. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, brother, sister, will you believe it? Will you believe that the war is over? That the gospel is greater news than even you could imagine? That when he said it's finished, all sins, past, present, but pastor, if I believe that all my sins, past, present, and future are forgiven through his once for all shed blood, I'll just go out and do whatever I want to do. No, you're still thinking through flesh. You will not if you truly rest in faith and believe that. It will create such a heart of gratitude in you. Oh yes, we still stumble in many ways. We still sin. Think about it. Yeah, you're still gonna sin. But the reality is, is when you go to God now, you've got confidence that the blood speaks on your behalf and you are forgiven so Jesus came to bring in a new covenant of total forgiveness of sin, absolute freedom, 
absolute freedom, absolute freedom from the law of Moses. Yeah, all of it, ceremonial, dietary, and moral. You know why? Because morality, it's empty without Jesus. How many moral religious people do you know that aren't saved? These were some of the most moral people of Jesus's day, the Pharisees, and yet they plotted to kill Jesus. So morality, sure. I mean, I wanna walk in the spirit. I wanna dwell in the spirit and understand that God's spirit lives in me and, and see Christ and, and see Christ in all that I do. And, and yeah, when I do that, when I love God and love others, I'm not gonna steal from them. I'm not gonna lie to them. I'm not gonna hate them. I'm not gonna gossip behind their backs about them. I'm not going to kill them. So you keep, end up keeping all the nine that you're worried about anyway. Why are we so fearful of letting go of the old? See, the Pharisees were fearful too. We can't let go of the old. We've got to protect our system. Why? Because their system gave to them control. And when you give to people grace and freedom, you're no longer in control. Guess who is? The Spirit. He's a much better teacher. He's a much better transformer of hearts than you or I could ever be. And I learned a long time in my ministry ago, I can't change anybody. All I can try to do is keep on telling you the all-surpassing betterness of Jesus. He's better. He'll be your anchor. He'll be your tower. He'll be the one that you cling to. I can't change you. Only God can. Only Jesus can. And so we have absolute freedom from the law of Moses, a total forgiveness of sin, and a totally new identity in him by his spirit through grace. And so this cannot be mixed with the old system of religion and self-righteousness that often comes through it. The old garment was obsolete. Hebrews chapter eight, verses seven and eight and 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. See, old, new. For finding fault with them. It wasn't God's law that was faulty. It was us that was faulty. We thought we could keep it. We stood there, not, 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 not we directly, but the nation of Israel stood there at Mount Sinai and said, all that the Lord has said we will do. What happened? Literally hours later, they were breaking the first commandment with the golden calf. Such bravado, such arrogance. They should have heard those lists of demands and said, whoa, I can't keep that list. I need something else. I need grace. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. He's quoting, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31, 31. And why is he quoting it? Because he's saying it's happened. It's happened. And the whole book of Hebrews is about the reality that Jesus has brought this in. Now, look at verse 13. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. I could never understand that verse until I really started studying the book of Acts and seeing that what God was doing, he's always patient. <laughs> he's patient with his people. He's specifically with Israel, but with all of us. But he was patient with Israel. And for 40 years after the death of Christ, we see laid out in the book of Acts this transition from the old to the new and this break. And with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the old was vanished. It, it was completely gone. Not that it wasn't already, but, but in the Jewish mind, it was still there. Because again, the Jew, a new thing, a new thing. Jews were resistant to change just like a lot of good old Baptists are resistant to change. 
Amen. Yeah, that's right. And so, because of that, God gave patience, and I'm so thankful for that, because that enables us to be patient as we grow and understand what the reality of God has done. But for 40 years, and if you study, if you look this up online, God gave to the Jewish people four omens that occurred in the Jewish temple that happened for 40 straight years. Fascinating. But he gave to them four signs in the temple every day. For instance, one, one, one was for 40 years, they could not keep the temple menorah lit every night it would go out. For 40 years, the temple doors were open the next morning when the priests would come in. For 40 years, the lot for the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement fell in the left hand for 40 years straight. The scarlet thread that turned white many years on the Day of Atonement when they cast forth the scapegoat into the wilderness, that scarlet thread that was originally tied around the scapegoat's neck to identify it between the two goats, they would, they would take that scarlet thread, put it on the temple post, and when the scapegoat was cast forth, that, that scarlet thread would many times turn white. Though your sins be red like crimson, they shall be as white as snow. But for 40 straight years, that scarlet thread never turned white. What was God saying? He was saying something significant in 30 AD happened that changed everything. The new came in. The old is gone. These two do not mix. God was doing a new thing. He was bringing about a new covenant. Not once does God's word instruct us to live under an operating system of mixed or blended covenants. In fact, he calls upon people to make a choice. He does not like lukewarmness. And so you have a decision to make. Which covenant are you going to live under? You cannot live under both. You cannot have, oh, well, well, well the new covenant's there for my justification and the old covenant's there for my sanctification. No, you are washed, you are justified, you are sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, whoa, are you saying that saint, you mean God set me apart and that's a past reality? Yes, but you're growing and you're maturing and you're understanding the reality that he has set you apart. And so the question is this, are you mixed up? Are you and I mixed up? Are we mixed up like the Pharisees were? They were so mixed up and bewildered and befuddled that they could not see the reality of the new thing that God was doing right in front of them. No man takes a new cloth and puts it in an old garment or else you'll ruin both. No man takes new wine and puts it in old wineskins. If you try it, you'll ruin both. These things do not mix. And when you get that, you start reading the Bible through a lens of either an old covenant understanding or a new covenant understanding. In fact, you read the gospels different. You understand that Jesus came to the Jews who were under the law to redeem them who were under the law. So when you read a lot of the hard sayings of Jesus, you understand that what he was saying is he was actually showing the true standard of the law. And he was saying, you better do this because if you're going to live by law and, and you don't do this, you're not going to get into heaven. And it helps you make sense of so many things in Scripture when you see it between the old and the new and you rightly divide. And so how do you know if you're mixing the two? How do we know whether maybe we're, we're struggling with being mixed up between the covenants and trying to have the, a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new mixed together with lukewarmness? Well, any mixture can be identified by the presence of carrots and sticks. What do I mean? Carrots are the blessings you get for obedience and sticks are the penalties you pay for disobedience. You know what I mean? When I say carrot, uh, 
How many of you have ever seen Bugs Bunny? You know Bugs Bunny. He loves carrots. And what did Elmer Fudd do sometimes to try to trap him? He would take that carrot and put it on a fishing pole and on a line, and he would hold it in front of Bugs, and, and Bugs would start chasing, you know, the carrot, the reward for if I do good, I get a cookie, you know, get a cookie. Um, and then sticks. Sticks are the penalties, you know, whap, that you're going to get if you do bad. And, of course, in the Old Covenant, this was a whole part of their system. I mean, Deuteronomy, uh, ha, ha, several chapters straight, it says, if you do this, then I'll do this. If you don't do this, then this curse will happen. And so, and so in the law, there was these blessings and cursings for whether you obeyed or disobeyed. And so what are some of the carrots that we hear often with people who are mixed up? Things like this. If I'm sincere and sorry enough in my asking, I'll be forgiven. There's teaching in churches all around that, that, that say you've got to, you know, go through this process. And wait, wait, the process was settled 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's not the quality of my confession that brings forgiveness. It's the quality of his perfect sinless blood that brought forgiveness. Let's be clear and let's rightly divide between old and new. And so if I'm sincere and sorry enough, people say, well, then, well, then I might be forgiven. That's mixed covenant theology. You're mixed up, friend, if you think that. They say, well, if I do right, I'll be accepted. This relationship in the new covenant has nothing to do, your acceptance has nothing to do with, with what you've done. It's everything to do with what he's done. If I act holy, then I'll be holy. No, no, no. The blood of Jesus made you holy. His new birth now calls you a saint Will you go and live in that reality? It's not your action that makes you that. It's your action that tells you whether you really believe that he's made you holy by his perfect sinless blood and through the new birth. Do you see the difference? If there's anybody that could have, like on number three, if anybody could have been challenged in that way, it would have been Corinth. But Paul calls the Corinthians saints in chapter one. For me, that's still the deal. I'm like, oh, okay. You're made a saint, not based on what you do, but based on what he's done. You see, that's where you get clarity in the gospel. Now, when you start pointing this out, people aren't going to like it. The Pharisees didn't like it. The, you mean my system's done? I have no other way now to, you know, rank up and be on a higher level than other people? I have no way to keep other people under me anymore? No. The system's over. I'm bringing in a new system. I'm bringing in a new and living way, which is eternal. I'm the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I will ever live to make intercession for the saints. And so these carrots show up in so much teaching today, even in Christian gospel preaching churches. Sticks. Sticks. What are some of the sticks? Well, if I fail to perform according to prevailing codes of conduct, then I'll lose my forgiveness. And there are so many codes of conduct that get created. That's why I have all the denominations today. You ever wonder why there's so many Christian denominations? Because of arguments over codes of conduct. Arguments over external rules that we think are important. And the motive's more important than the rule, right? I mean, that's what Jesus continually confronted. He said, guys, you do all these things and you've left off the weightier matters. You don't have love and mercy for the poor. What good is your code of conduct if it never leads you outside to reach publicans and sinners and lepers and paralyzed people, women with issues of blood. And so we get this thought, well, if I fail to act according to the prevailing code of conduct, then I'll lose my forgiveness. 
Number two, I will lose my fellowship. Boy, that word gets completely mistranslated in Scripture. I'll lose my fellowship. Fellowship was established through what Jesus did on the cross. Live in that reality. Three, if I'm not careful, I might even lose my salvation. And what happens is, as we read some of the Jewish epistles where, again, there's this transition for them happening because, and we read words like continue and, and uh, keeping yourself. And, and so we come away with mixed theology, doctrinal debates. And you know what clarifies all the doctrinal debates, the, 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 big, the big popular ones? Rightly dividing between the Old and New Covenant seeing that Jesus has brought in something that's so new, we have trouble resting in it. And so when you look at these carrots and sticks, I mean, just look at them. You hear this all the time. I believed these for years. I was in this continual condemnation, guilt, confession, ask for forgiveness, then go right back into the same sin I was doing over and over. I was in that cycle for years, and I believed and I taught this stuff even. And you know what? It's mixed up. It has nothing to do with the reality of the new. None of this, none of these carrots and sticks sounds like good news to me. None of it. None of it sounds like good news. It's mixed up news. Yet tragically, this is the sort of message that millions of people hear every week. They don't hear about Jesus. They just hear about more carrots and sticks more things that they've got to try to do to make sure they're okay. Here's the good news. You're only going to ever be okay because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. At what point do you rest and throw a feast and say, hallelujah, it is finished. It's over. It's done. And it's so done and it's so simple, we immediately go to work complicating it the moment we get it. Trying to systematize it, trying to put God in our nice little comfortable box of systematic theologies, and, and then you get into the seminaries, and they debate between their systematic theologies, and, and denominations get created, and then keyboard battles on Facebook occur. You know what's so freeing about the gospel? Once they get the good news, I won't have to shut them up. It'll transform them forever. Old doesn't mix with the new. It doesn't mix with the new. Why do Christians who have claimed to experience the new birth and the amazing grace of Jesus continue to believe that fear is the greatest motivator in their life? When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, that it's love that is now the greatest motivator. The love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ transforms me. John goes on to say, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And so the Pharisees hear this parable. They're there and they hear Jesus saying, you're asking me questions about the old system, fasting, Sabbath days, associations with different sinners, and there's going to be other rules that they're going to confront them about. And he's like, you don't understand. You're trying to take what I'm about to do, and you're trying to fit it into an old system. They don't mix. That's clearly what this parable is about. And so they hear this. And here's my question to you. You've heard this today. 
what's your response to what Jesus has taught today in his word? Now, the Pharisees heard this. What was their response? Well, we don't get their response here. But over in Luke, where it has the companion story of what Jesus told them, there's one more little thing that Jesus adds on, and I want you to see it, because this is how the Pharisees responded. We know this because they ended up killing Jesus. Here's how they responded. So he gives the illustration. Old garment, new garment, don't mix. New wine, old wine, don't mix. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. He says, the old is good enough. What does that mean? The Pharisees were comfortable in their religion. It it was okay if Jesus came to be an add-on. It was okay if Jesus came into their system and, and, you know, and we get a little, pardon the pun, but Jesus juice. And that sadly, and I don't say that to be sacrilegious at all, but that's sadly what most, many churches even preach who claim to preach the gospel. That, yeah, God just comes in and helps you do your best. No. Our best wasn't good enough. He who keeps the whole law and offends in one point, he's guilty of all. When will we agree with the word from heaven? No, God, you don't come in to help me do my best. You did it all, and now I live in a relationship with you where you continue to do it all. All my boasting will be in Christ. When I stand before heaven, when I stand before God in heaven, I'll have no boasting in myself. It'll all be, oh God, look at your son. On that day when I did that, He was the one doing it through me, not me, never me. All I have is Christ. He is all surpassingly lovely. He's better. He brought in the new. And God, as best as I can, the mission of my life is to make sure that everyone that I speak to knows the difference between old and new and that they do not mix. Let's pray.